0: If you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. I was talking with someone in the church earlier this week and told them that I was going to be preaching on Ecclesiastes 12, and her comment was, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on Ecclesiastes 12. And my guess would be many of you have probably never heard a sermon in the book of Ecclesiastes, period. And you may wonder why that is. Well, there's a good reason why that is, because most preachers don't have a clue what Ecclesiastes is about. I mean, we just don't know what to do with it. Even Bible scholars are divided on how to interpret this book. Some of you are still looking for it. You don't even know where it is. It's right after Proverbs, right in the middle. Ecclesiastes, what is it about? Well, the book opens with the words, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Other translations have meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Or there's nothing to anything. It's all smoke. Now, that is not a good and encouraging way to begin a book of the Bible, is it? I mean, you read it, you think, great, great. You know, this is, this is the time, this is the book that you go through when you're depressed, I guess. And you just, you know, just can't see meaning or value in anything in life. And, and so, you know, people wonder, what is this book about? How do I, how do I use this book to grow closer to God and to, to be built up in my faith in Christ? After all, that's, what, that's how we should read the Bible. But how do we do that from Ecclesiastes? What, what is it all about? Well, the very first verse says that this is the words of the preacher the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, because he has a reputation for being the wisest man who ever lived, because he was a son of David, a king in Jerusalem, many people think this book is written by Solomon. But there's some problems with thinking that Solomon was the author of this book. First of all, he says later in chapter 1, I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who are ruling over uh, Jerusalem before me. There was only one person that ruled over Jerusalem before Solomon. That was King David. Why would he say all the people that came before me? Uh, that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Secondly, why would he just say, I'm Solomon? I mean, in Proverbs and the Song of Songs, Solomon is very, very upfront that this has come from his hand. But we don't see that here. In fact, there's even the issue of the language itself. You know, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew uh, in a very specific kind of Hebrew. And, you know, language changes over time. I mean, we all speak English, like, as far as I know, that's all that I'm preaching in, unless the Spirit's doing something I don't know about. But I'm speaking English, you're hearing English, but you know, the same English that we speak is not the same kind of English that the founding fathers would have spoken. It's not the same uh, English that the, the, the pilgrims, when they first came over, they would have spoken. Language changes. New vocabulary happens. Verbal tenses change. And so, likewise, with Hebrew, we have here Ecclesiastes written in a kind of Hebrew that is um, much younger than the kind of Hebrew that would have been around when Solomon was alive. It looks like the kind of Hebrew from after the exile, which remember we saw the people going into in 2 Kings. So what it looks like is going on here is there is this spiritual leader in Israel, this this wise person, this wisdom teacher who takes on the persona as kind of an idealized Solomon, a kind of super Solomon, the wisest man who has ever lived, and he shows himself to be on a search for the meaning of life. I think most of us can connect with that, can't we? Most of us, whether it was before Christ or even now after Christ, we're searching for the meaning of life and want to know what is it all about. This man says he looks everywhere under the sun and is left ultimately with the realization it's all vanity. It's all vanity. It's to say It is fleeting and life is empty. The word for vanity comes from our word that we get vapor So the author of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, wants to show us that though God has given good things, this life is ultimately marred by sin. And if you try and find uh, the meaning of life too hard in the things under the sun, the things in this life, what you will find is a life that is meaningless. God's gifts are good, but they're not that good. They're not ultimate After looking at everything, things like the natural world and things like wisdom itself and knowledge and pleasure and possessions and power and accomplishments, the preacher determines none of it gives meaning to life. It's all a vapor. You are born, you live, and you die. And that's it. There's nothing more to it. Instead, what the preacher says is that if you want to look for the meaning of life. You need to look beyond just the things under the sun and you need to look for things beyond the sun in heaven itself. If you want to know the meaning of life, then you need to look beyond just the good gifts that God has given to us to enjoy and benefit from and look to the giver, the one who has given us those gifts. Wisdom, living a wise life, ultimately is living according to God's perspective on life, is knowing God. That's what Ecclesiastes is all about this morning. And so in order to to understand how it is that, that we can pursue that kind of genuinely meaningful life, we want to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 12. I would encourage you to follow along as I read. Remember also the Creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. And the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few. And those who look to the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut. when The sound of the grinding is low. The one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and the terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God and gave it. Vanity of vanity says the preacher, all is vanity. Vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with a great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God. And keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of God. In this last chapter, the preacher of Ecclesiastes wraps up all that he has to say. He provides, as he says, the end of the matter. And as we look here, we also want to see what this wise man has to say, not only to understand what he has said before in the first 11 chapters, but also that we may better understand what it means to truly live wisely in this world, a world ultimately of foolishness and vanity. And so we want to know how to live wisely a life that is meaningful today. And what we see ultimately are three things that we need to think about. First, we need to live without regret. We need to live without regret. We see this in the first eight verses. The preacher begins the chapter reminding us of something most people don't want to think about. Getting old. In fact, just last night, we're sitting on the couch... Relaxing chocolate chip cookies have been made, and Melinda looks to me and says, You got a lot of white in that beer on that side, don't you? And I was like, Yeah, yeah, I do. Getting old, stress is on its way, and what do we do? We don't like to think about that, do we? We don't like to, we don't like to talk about those kinds of things. I remember, what, I remember a couple of years ago, I several years ago now, uh, when I, I changed from doing just the parted hair uh, to having a shorter and kind of more together, uh, the first question, the first question one of the youth asked me was, are you getting ready for the comb over as you go bald? <laughs> I said, no, actually, I'm making it so it's easier as it goes bald. I don't have to hide it. And then one day, zip. originally, Pastor Richard, now just Pastor Joe. We're the only ones that are you know, going to be completely bald. That's all right. He looks good. But we don't, we don't like to talk about being old, do we? We dye our hair. We plaster on more makeup and we do all kinds of things. You have those unfortunate people who try and hide their age by wearing young people clothes and it only accents the fact that they are too old to be wearing those clothes, right? Act your age, dress your age. Though in some cultures, especially in the East, a more biblical mindset is embraced where the aged are revered. Here in this country, the aged are despised. That's why we don't want to grow old because we know that we're marginalized. We're we're kind of put off to the side as we get older. Nobody respects us. Nobody treats us well. They just throw us in homes and come by every couple of months to see if we're okay. And if some people have their way, you reach a certain point. Now, they're not even going to pay for medical care. They're just going to put a needle in your arm and be done with it and throw you in a box, because you're a burden on the state. It's already happening in other ones. And I fear it's coming here, too. We don't care about the agent. So what happens? We fear age, don't we? We fear getting old. Yeah, the author of Ecclesiastes will not let us ignore the fact we are getting old. Every day, time marches on. In graphic detail in these verses, he describes old age. He begins in verse 1 by reminding us that very often in old age, we find no pleasure in our days. We get to the point where we're just going through the motions. Why? Verse 2, he says, because old age is the winter of life. That's just like the year winding down, so also our lives begin to wind down. And verse 3 describes old age like a house that's decaying. It's falling apart, and there's only a few old relics left in it. Verses 4 through 5 continue the picture. We're reminded of the hearing loss that happens in old age. We're reminded, we're given the picture of a person who no longer takes long walks or, or, or skips over the rocks with zest and zeal because they're old and they're fearful of being jostled or falling down and breaking something just as the almond trees blossom white from its dark head, so the older person's hair turns white with age. When we get old, arthritis takes hold of our worn-out joints and we begin to wobble around like an ungainly grasshopper, he says in verse 5. Verse 6 reminds us of the very things that give us life. The silver cord of the spine, the golden bowl of the head, the pitcher of the heart, they all one day stop working they all one day decay and return to the dust from which god created them therefore therefore the author says remember your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near remembering here is not just memory It's not just just keeping a thought in your mind, oh yeah, there's a creator that I have. It's about abandoning all illusions that life can be lived apart from your creator. That somehow we can go on in life without God. He says, don't do that. Don't live that way. But even while you're young, remember your creator. Remember, you've been created with a purpose by a person. He made our lives. He guides our lives. He alone can see the pattern of life. So if you pursue him, your life, will not be meaningless. Unless the sin of this world causes our lives to be snuffed out prematurely, old age is coming, folks. It is coming. The time will come when our life is spent. And Ecclesiastes is reminding us we have a choice on what our, our, our old age is going to be like. It's either going to be looking back at a life and being regretful, being sorry of how we have wasted the time that we have been given, well, it's going to be looking back with satisfaction that we lived a meaningful life with no regrets. I've often often mentioned Pastor John Piper, and what you may not know is that his father, before he died, he was an evangelist. And he, Piper, John Piper says that his father Bill used to come home all the time telling stories from the Crusades he was at about seeing the gospel work and go forth with power and people getting saved. But he says the one story that lasted with him the most, the one that had the most impact, was a story his father told of an elderly man who got saved. And here's what he says The church had prayed for this man for decades, he was hard and resistant. But this time, for some reason, he showed up when my father was preaching. At the end of the service during a hymn, to everyone's amazement, he came and took my father's hand. They sat down together on the front pew of the church as the people were dismissed. God opened his heart to the gospel of Christ and he was saved from his sins and given eternal life. But that did not stop him from sobbing and saying as the tears ran down his wrinkled face. And what an impact it made on me to hear my father say this through his own tears. I've wasted it. I've wasted it. Here's a man who is elderly and is closer, far closer to the grave than he ever was, the cradle. And he says, I look back and only now I'm being saved and I realize I have wasted my entire life. Some of you here this morning are in middle age. Some of you are already getting discounts at grocery stores and at restaurants. Let me say to you, it's never too late to stop and to find the real meaning of life. It's never too late to get back on the kind of place that your creator wants you to do, the kind of path that he desires you to be on so that you will not waste your life. But some of you here are still young. Some of you here are still very, very young. You need to listen to what the preacher in Ecclesiastes says. You need to listen to the testimony of the old man who got saved at old age. Don't waste your life! Even now, pursue God so that you do not live a life of regret. You do not want to be sitting in a wheelchair with an IV stuck in your arm in a hospital bed at 90 years old and look back and say, oh God, I've wasted my life. There was so much opportunity, so much meaning that could have been had. I gave it all away for the things of this world. Ecclesiastes says there is nothing under the sun but vanity, meaningless vapor. If you want meaning in life, if you want significance in life, then it can only be found what is above the sun, in God himself. If we are to have a meaningful life, we will not be the fool. We will live wisely and remember your creator, our creator, in our youth. Secondly, if we want to have a meaningful life, we will use knowledge wisely. We will use knowledge wisely. We see this in verses 9 through 12. Listen to what he says. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly. He wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Now, at first glance, compared to what we just heard, it looks like he's taking a little detour. It's like he's got some kind of little hodgepodge collection of sayings here and advice that doesn't connect anything. But as I've said here, Ecclesiastes is wanting you to understand that we must use knowledge wisely, specifically knowledge of God. And look, at, look again at what he's saying. Besides being wise, the preacher taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs of great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The preacher took great care and used great skill and wisdom to put together the things in this book that he is wanting to convey. And we're told he did this to specifically teach people, to give them knowledge. But what do you do with that knowledge? What do you do with the information that's been given to you? He wrote down wise words and in verse 11 we're told the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. If you have cattle or livestock or grown up around them, you know what a goat is. If you don't have animals, I'll tell you what a goat is. A goad is either a very long stick or a pole that's going kind to of sharpen sharpened in it, or very often in the Middle East they would actually drive a nail through the edge of this thing. And when the, the animals were not going where they were supposed to go, they're not doing what they're supposed to do, they're getting out of line. They got a nice little whack with that goad to get them back in line, moving in the right direction. That was that was what not just the shepherd of sheep, but anyone who was in charge of the animals, they would do to get them going where they need to be going. And the preacher here says this is the intended effect of the words of the wise. They act like goads in our life to get us back moving in the right direction we should go. Furthermore, he writes, My son, beware of anything beyond these wise words given by the shepherd. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Now, I know some of you probably don't know this, but I love books. I like reading books, I like arranging books so I can find them helpfully on the shelves in my house. I like walking through large bookstores or browsing through online bookstores. I like walking through the stacks in a library. If scientists could ever find some way to distill into a perfume the smell of books, either new or carefully preserved old ones, uh, let me tell you, ladies, you should buy that perfume because mainly men who read books will find that very attractive, okay? We we like books. But listen, listen, there are a lot of books out there. There are a lot of books out there. You want a book on marriage? You go down to Barnes & Noble, guess what you're going to find? A couple hundred books on marriage. Are you going to read them all? Of course you're not going to read them all. How do you pick and choose? How do you know what to read? If you try and sit down and read them all, then suddenly the Ecclesiastes advice here pops out at you. Much study is a weariness of the flesh. Can you imagine? Well, I want my marriage to be better. So I got these 200 books on marriage. What? You're going to, the marriage will be over by the time you finish those things. It's weariness. Weariness. What are you going to do? The United States alone last year published over 275,000 books. That's new publications. This does not even include reprints of old books. The Library of Congress holds more than 32 million books. Of making many books, there is no end. So what does this have to do with wisdom? It goes right back to verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. You can't read every book that's ever been published. And you shouldn't, he says. You've got to pick and choose the right books. You've got to pick and choose the ones to weed out the foolish books and to read and take into you the ones written by those that are wise, ones that ultimately are given by the shepherd and reflect good teaching on his words. Why? Why? Because we don't read books just to be smarter. We don't, we don't read books just to get more information. We read books to have our lives transformed. That's what he's saying here. Now, what does that mean for us? That means we have to do two things. First, we need to be seeking words that are given by the shepherd. That is to say, not just teaching that has a couple of Bible verses in there, but teaching that is truly rooted in and grounded in and seeks to explain the very words of God, our chief shepherd. And, and in some ways, in our media-saturated culture, that's, a, that's, a, that's an easy thing to do. There's a lot of good teaching and preaching out there, but it's also, it's a double-edged sword. Because frankly, when you go online, preachers are a dime a dozen. They're a dime a dozen. You can can listen to any of the biggest names from California to New York City, as well as the podunk preachers out in North Dakota. I mean, for goodness sake, they let me put my sermons online. What does that tell you? There's no one checking out there. There is no quality control for sermons on the internet. So you need to be looking for good teaching. Whether it's online sermons, whether it's books that you read about the faith, you've got to be discerning. Don't just go with what's available. Don't just flip on the radio, oh, here's a preacher, I'll, I'll listen to that. You have no idea what that guy's saying. You have no idea what he believes. You've got to, you've got to make sure that what you're seeking out, what you're taking is wise words. Otherwise, what's going to happen? You're going to be led astray. You're going to be led astray. It's like, like a lost and wandered astray, not into a wise living that finds meaning in God, but into a foolish living that's either going to find meet, try to find meaning in a false God or in no God at all, but in the things of this earth. But secondly, when you do find good teaching, when you do find wise teaching that comes ultimately through the word of the shepherd, what we have to do is let ourselves be goaded. This is the more difficult thing. Many Christians like hearing good preaching and reading good books. But many more don't like to have their lives changed many more are content to just sit back and enjoy the experience and then close the book up and put it on the shelf and say wasn't that a nice book or walk away and say wasn't that a nice sermon and sunday evening and monday morning there's no difference in their life there's no change there's not even a desire to have my life change and move in the right direction it's just that was a nice experience and now it's time to move on to something else what is what is newest and truest the, the preaching of Ecclesiastes says, that's not, that's not what God is giving us wise words for. That's not what he's giving us teaching for. He's giving us these things so that every once in a while we'll get a good whack in the backside. Not to kill us, but to correct us, to remind us, this is the direction you should be going. Not this way, or this way, or that way. This is the way that the wise are to live. And so if we are going to live wise lives, lives that have meaning, then we need to be open to letting ourselves be transformed by true knowledge given by the shepherd. We have to use knowledge wisely. Then finally, we need to obey the Lord fearfully. We need to obey the Lord fearfully. The author comes to the very end of the book in verses 13 and 14. He says, look, when it's all said and done, when I've said all that I have learned about what isn't the meaning of life, here now is the most important lesson I can give you. To understand and obey this is the very essence of a wise life. He says the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Ecclesiastes says, look, remember, one day there will be an accounting. One day there will be a judgment. Every thought, every attitude, every word, and every action will be judged. There will be a judgment. Hebrews says, It's appointed unto man to die once, and then the judgment. And so frankly, in the interest of, of wisdom and discernment, we just call this last point, the people that say, oh yeah, I died and I was at heaven and it was great, or I, I can't. Don't buy it. Die once and then the judgment. What does that mean? That means no second chances, no third chances, no fourth chances. You get one shot at this thing. And then you will stand before the one who created you to give an account for your life. Therefore, therefore, the preacher says in Ecclesiastes, to fear God and keep his commandments is the whole duty of man. That is where the meaning of life is found. That is what we were made for by our creator. Last week, we talked about what it means to fear the Lord. And that theme, the fear of the Lord runs through the entire Bible. Just, again, do a search, just quotes, the fear of the Lord, and look up all those passages and see how it runs throughout the Scriptures and what the fear of the Lord is said to produce or to be like. It's an important theme. And every time it comes up, frankly, every time that it comes up in discussion or in Bible study or sermons, I'm always a little worried that we sell it just a little short. I'm always worried that we kind of water down that word fear in our minds that we're so quick to run away from actually actually thinking about fear. Oh, no, no, reverence, reverence, awe. Reverence and awe, reverence and awe. I think the, the Bible is, is pulling us a little bit and saying, no, it's, it's, it's not cowardly, craven fear. Oh, God, I'm so oh, I'm scared, scared, scared. But, but, it's, but it's not just, oh, I'm just, just reverence. I think it's somewhere in the middle. Or I really think that there, there is a, there's a stronger edge to it so that when Hebrews says, our God is a consuming fire, You want to say, that's nice. You say, whoa, God is a consuming fire. That's the God I worship and the God I serve, the God who has saved me. Again, the the fear is is, is not causing us to cower in the corner, but it's a fear that causes us to understand our place in the universe. You see, if God is nothing more than a kindly grandfather who wouldn't hurt anybody, which is a very popular view today, then frankly, he's not much of a God. But secondly, the fact that we have a relationship with him doesn't mean very much. I mean, yeah, so what? I got, I got, you know, I got one grandfather still alive. I had two. I had a great grandfather once that I knew. Big deal. But if if there was was an all-supreme creator of all things, the sovereign king of kings, if he is the most holy being in the universe that causes sin to melt before him, if he is the God who not only conceived of but actually brought into existence every particle of matter and energy in the universe and coalesced them into this amazing array of planets and constellations and burning stars with the word, just a word, He's the same God who will one day with a word bring this universe to nothing and recreate it perfect without stain of sin. And that's the God I have a relationship with? That means something. That means something. And so I think that we have to maintain this this tension of yes, God God loves us, God has reconciled us in Christ, and and yet we are to fear the Lord. And I think that the tension that exists in the Bible is captured well in one of C.S. Lewis' books, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. There the, the children are talking with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver about Aslan, a character who represents God in the book. And this is what we read. Lucy does, never heard of Aslan the Lion, so she's asking, is, who is Aslan? Is he a man? Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly Not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh," said Susan. "I, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting the lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake," said Mrs. Beaver. "If there's any one who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Th- then he isn't safe," said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I'm longing to see him, said Peter, even if I do feel frightened when it comes to the point. And Lewis goes on to say, "'People sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. "'If the children had ever thought so, they were cured of it now. "'For when they tried to look at Aslan's face, "'they just caught a glimpse of the golden mane and the great royal, "'solemn, overwhelming eyes, and they found they couldn't look at him "'and went all trembly. "'His voice was deep and rich and somehow took the fidgets out of them, "'and they now felt glad and quiet, "'and it didn't seem awkward to them to stand and say nothing.'" That, I think, is getting at what the Bible talks about when it talks about the fear of the Lord, to know and to fear Him. To fear Him means to know when to keep quiet, but also to take joy in being quiet. There is a rightness about standing or bowing before the Lord and fearfully trusting Him with every part of your life. And notice what it is wedded with, obedience. Fear God and keep His commandments. Now the preacher has shown us in this book from chapters 1 through 11 that the world is marred by sin. That's why we cannot find meaning in this world. And yet we hear an exhortation like this, that wisdom is found in fearing God and keeping His commandments, and we should immediately feel the weight of our sin. Because this morning and last night and this past week and this past month, we have not feared God and kept His commandments as we should. Even as God's people, we have failed to do that. So when we hear the preacher say, the meaning of life is found in fearing God and obeying Him, a part of us should, should feel this, this, this kind of weighed downness all of a sudden, realizing, I, I've not done that like I should have. I, I may have tried, but I've failed. I've, I've sinned we realize that it is hard to keep God's commandments. And when we're confronted with a verse like this, this is where where the cross of Christ comes out and begins to stand as the focal point of our lives as God's people. We fear God again, not the kind of fear that says, if I don't obey God, God's going to do something bad to me. No, for those who have trusted in Christ, we are acceptable to God because of what Christ has done. His death for us. His life for us. We're already made right with God. We're already acceptable to Him. Therefore, we will not be punished for our sins because our punishment has already fallen on Christ. Now, what does Jesus say in John 14? Ecclesiastes says, Fear God and keep His commandments. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. How do you, so, so how do you come to obey God's commandments? Love Jesus. Love Jesus. Don't work hard at righteousness on your own. And the just say no method to sin, it won't work. You You have to fight the worship of sin with the worship of Christ. You worship your way into sin believing somehow that thing is better than God, that thing is more satisfying than God, so you come to worship the sin and disobey God. And what you need to do to get out of the sin is to better worship God. Jesus says, love me and you will keep my commandments. Work harder at loving Jesus and obedience will flow. Obedience is an effect, not a cause. It's not obey God and you'll love him. No, no, it's love God and then you will come to obey him. Love produces obedience. So the more we look at the work of Christ for us, the more we will be brought to our knees in humble gratitude. And the more we look at the work of Christ, the more we will come to love Christ who died for us and the son who sent him to do it. And the more we love God, the more we will obey him. In Ecclesiastes 2, the preacher says, I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind and there is nothing to be gained under the sun. Loved ones, life under the sun, life apart from God is ultimately meaningless. Life under the sun apart from God is a life that will accomplish nothing. 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 Therefore, Ecclesiastes tells us to be wise and see the foolishness of trying to live apart from the one who created us, apart from God. Jesus says, come to me and I will give you life with God. Therefore, the most foolish thing in the world, the most foolish thing in the world is to try and find ultimate meaning in this life apart from God. But the wisest thing in the world is to realize that a meaningful life comes in knowing God and in fearing Him and in loving Him so that you can obey Him. Therefore, this morning, I urge you, do not live like the fool, but live like a wise person and pursue a meaningful life through God. Father, it's to you that we now pray the one who created us, the one who, though yes, gave us good gifts to enjoy, to see as a blessing from your hand, and yet, Father, we desire not to worship those gifts as ultimate things. You are the only ultimate thing. Therefore, God, if we are to truly live wisely, if we are to truly know and to have and enjoy a meaningful life, a life that we will not look back on and be disappointed with or have regret with, Father, then I pray that we would look to you this morning in faith of your Son, Jesus Christ, and truly live wisely. We ask all this in His name. Amen.